This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 132, and we are recording on May 15th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot and more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's just it. That's it. Powered by. <laughs> yeah. All of the coffee. Starbucks. When I was in New York with my parents to see Hamilton, we went by a... Um, Oh, like a coffee emporium. I don't know where mm. they, you know, the cute things where they sell the whole beans in the giant burlap oh, sack. Yes. And my, the flavor that I got was bourbon. Oh, coffee, I like love bourbon. bourbon bean coffee. Yes, it's amazing. So now I feel like I'm doing the best of both worlds. Like I'm living <laughs> some sort of weird center of our, everyone's wheelhouse life in the mornings. My favorite coffee company, uh, Death Wish Coffee, does these limited batch, like unnecessary, well, I don't know if it's unnecessarily expensive, but super expensive batches of like specially aged beans. And the one that they did for St. Patrick's Day, because they're usually tied to some holiday, was like Irish, like cream aged beans. And the coffee really did taste like... Like an Irish coffee. Nice. Um, but it was not alcoholic at all. It was amazing. It was like magic. It's bean magic. <laughs> bean magic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what are you reading these days, Amanda? Um, I just started a new audiobook completely in like a, I'm scrolling through Libby and I'm just going to pick a thing kind of a way. Uh, and it was Etiquette and Espionage by Gail Carriger. Nice. Carriger? Um, which is the first book in her Finishing School YA series, which has existed on, like, the periphery of my reading list forever. It's, I've, it's always been like, oh, I should read that series and see how it goes. But I never got around to it, so I finally bit the bullet. And it is how freaking hilarious. It's so funny. It's, like, steampunk Victorian, and it's about a 14-year-old girl named Sophronia, who is, like, a lady. Um, but she is not good at it. Like, she has terrible manners, and all she wants to do is dismantle all the steampunk, like, servant so, like, because they're all mechanical and see what they're made of and flirt with stable boys and get greasy and destroy things. So her mother sends her off to what she thinks is a finishing school, but it's actually, like, a finishing school where they learn how to be spies and murder people and, like, assassins. And it's just, like, super fun. And she's, like, a very competent 14-year-old who likes to take stuff apart. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Um, well, I will just tell you really quickly about Gail Carriger that she commits. Like when we, when I was at the bookstore, we hosted a book party for one of her newer ones and she like came in full regalia. She had a little hat with feathers on it and a bustle and drank tea with her pinky out and was like 100% exactly who you want writing like books like etiquette and espionage, I just say it's it's impressive. If you ever get to see her in real life, it's amazing. Um, okay, let's see. What am I reading? So I just in the mail this morning got my copy of Welcome Home, which is an anthology of adoption themed short stories, um, and. Eric Smith, who is a Book Riot contributor and also host of um, the Hey YA podcast, um, was the one who put it together. And um, I was, I'm so excited that I finally got it because 
I had like kind of forgotten that this book existed. And then it was my two-year-old niece's gotcha day very recently, um, which if you're not familiar is like, you can celebrate a couple of gotcha day a couple of different ways, but we're counting from her court date that finalized her adoption. And, um, and it was like, uh, yeah, it was a two year anniversary of her gotcha day. And I was like, oh, I need to get this book now so that in 10 years mm. she can read it. And in the meantime, I'll just hang on to it and read it for her. Um, and I'm really excited to have it because it has all kinds of amazing contributors in it. Um, Nick Stone is in there. Um, let's see. Sengu Mandana is in there who wrote like a Frankenstein retelling that I dug. Um, there's just like a bunch of fantastic YA authors and other people too, not just YA people, but YA people were the ones that I mostly recognize. CJ Redwine is in there. Um, William Ritter who wrote Jacoby. So it's a really great lineup and I cannot wait to start reading these stories and kind of like get into that um, story space because it's not, I haven't read that many stories or novels, honestly, about adoption I don't think. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited to finally have that in my possession. So that is Welcome Home, uh, edited by Eric Smith. Yay. Okay. Yes. So this show, as we mentioned at the top, is a personalized reading recommendation show, which means you send us questions about what you should read next or what you should gift to a friend or a relative, what your book club should read whatever, uh, we will try to find you your next good read. Um, you can submit those questions either by email. It's getbooked at bookriot.com or you can put them in the show notes that are at the bottom of, excuse me, at the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every episode. Um, if you have a time-sensitive request, you want a response by a certain date, please put that in either the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form, all caps, Make it really obvious for us. Um, we get a lot of these, and it is sometimes very hard, easy to miss uh, if we're skimming and it's not super clear. Um, we will do our best to get you an answer by that time, but if we don't think we're going to get to it on air, we might email you a response. We might also email you a response if it's a question that we've answered a couple other times. So keep an eye out for those. Um, so let's see. I'm going to read our first question, and then Amanda will do our first sponsor, and away we will go. So this first question is from, I'm going to go with Cell. It's C-E-L. Sorry if I said that wrong. Uh, who says, one of my best friends just got accepted to volunteer with the Peace Corps in Samoa. For her birthday, I want to give her a book that will get her extra hyped about the experience. She's already done a ton of research, so I'm not necessarily looking for something informative so much as something that's just fun. I would love something focused on Samoa slash the South Pacific. That should probably skip the stranded on a tropical island trope because we're trying to be excited here. Mm -hmm. uh, something more contemporary than Margaret Mead or Robert Louis Stevenson, maybe even something own voices doesn't have to relate to Peace Corps volunteering but that would be cool too she reads mostly fiction and somewhere some memoir but not a lot of straight nonfiction. recently she's been reading and enjoying books like the bees uh less young jane young some of her favorites are don't let's go to the dogs tonight the girls from corona del mar egg and spoon and anything tom robbins all right amanda Okay, before we get going, I've got our first sponsor to tell you about, which is Clairvoyant by Rochelle Delaney. Clara, space, voyant. Get it? Okay. Get it. <laughs> Clara's mother um, is a bit of a hippie. She's decided she's going to follow her bliss, you know, which involves moving her 
and her daughter into a tiny little apartment and working at an herbal remedy shop and trying to hone her powers of mystical fabulousness. Um, Clara tries to make the best of this kind of bad situation by joining the newspaper at her new school uh, where she can, you know, sharpen her, like, logical skills that exist in reality because this is the thing she's doing as a reaction to her mother and tell the kind of hard news stories that she actually appreciates. But then the editor relegates her to writing the horoscopes. And then Clara's horoscopes start to come true. So then everyone at school is talking about clairvoyant, you know, the talented mystical fortune teller. And she's horrified because they're not real. Horoscopes aren't real. Clairvoyance isn't real. But then a mystery starts unfolding in her new school and she finds herself in a super strange situation, having the opportunity to prove herself as a real investigative journalist while also maybe recognizing that she might have a little bit of magical abilities going on that will help her. So yeah, she is not pleased about the general unfolding of events, but also wants to be a journalist and solve this mystery one way or t'other. So that is Clara Voyant by Rochelle Delaney, and that is available wherever children's books are sold uh, today. It's out today. So go, go gadget, get that. Okay. Samoan South Pacific authors. I picked Sons for the Return Home by Albert Went. And this is an own voices novel. Uh, Went was born in Samoa and it was published in the 70s. And this is a really uh, on the surface kind of simple book about a Samoan student um, whose family lives in New Zealand and he is a student at Auckland University. Uh, And he falls in love with a white Kiwi woman who comes from a really wealthy family. And then, um, you know, stuff happens. There's loss and grief and a lot of racism. But the interesting thing about this book is it is a migrant story. You know, like the the main character is Samoan. He moves to New Zealand and faces a lot of um, prejudice there. But Went is really looking at like all of these intersections of prejudice that exist in the South Pacific and in New Zealand specifically. Um, Like, New Zealand and how much they don't like people from Australia and how and how like sometimes the feeling is mutual and also prejudices that like people born in the villages of Samoa have against people who are born in the cities of Samoa um, and of course there's people of color and white people who don't like each other for various reasons so there's like a lot of um, hostility and friction and and like generational trauma and generational inherited prejudice, which all prejudice is really generational inherited, uh, unfolding through this love story that uh, the narrators never have names. So you don't really even know who you're following and he's written it that way, you know, so it's very easy um, to slip into kind of, this is the story of every man and every woman experiencing this sort of uh, life in the seventies in New Zealand. Um, And it's, it's so interesting because the Samoans are the largest minority in New Zealand, um, but I had never New Zealand, but it's never been by a Samoan author ever. Um, it not, and this, I think, was one of the first uh, pu- like largely published books by a Samoan author, and it was you know the seventies, which is not that long ago, so it's a little bit shocking. Um, and it did win he not this book, but a different book he wrote, Leaves of the Banyan Tree, won the New Zealand Book Awards in nineteen eighty. So he's got lots. He's a, a very prolific writer. You can send her just a stack, really, if you want. Um, so that's Sons for the Return Home by Albert Went. Nice. Um, mine is one I haven't read, but I was researching Simone authors because that was not a thing I knew much about. And this one just stood out to me as a really great option. It's Where We Once Belonged by Sia Fijil. Uh, apologies if I pronounced that wrong. Um, trigger warning for domestic violence in this book. I'm not going to discuss it, um, but it is a major part of the book. Um, and this novel was her debut novel, and it won the Commonwealth. Wealth Writers Prize for Best 
first book for the Southeast slash South Pacific region. Um, so it's like, I, I, I'm always curious about the Commonwealth Prize because um, it often highlights authors that I would never find otherwise. And this is definitely one of those. It is about a 13-year-old girl named Alofa Feligia. Um, I probably got that wrong too. I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying. Um, who is trying to basically, it's a, it's a coming-of-age story. It's not a YA novel, um, but it's about a young girl who is trying to figure out who she is um, and basically how to like transition from being a child to being an adolescent and an adult um, and lives in a Samoan village and is really struggling with sort of the traditions of, you know, like traditional culture versus being part of the modern world. Um, and one of the interesting things about this book is that it has, um, it's not super chronological, so it bounces around in an episodic way. And it also interweaves um, myths and like folk tales um, from Samoan culture. So you're getting not just this one girl's kind of difficult and sad and like angry in certain moments uh, story, but you're also getting some of the cultural, you know, information that you might not otherwise get if it was just um, zoomed in on her daily life. So the author is interweaving a lot of different things here. I know you wanted, like you asked for something fun and this is not something fun, but I think own voices are really important. And I, I like, I think that it's worth, you know, taking a dive into something that might be a difficult read as long as it's not majorly triggering for you. Um, to get that information and to see, you know, life from this very uh, specific viewpoint that doesn't often get represented. Um, so I've already got my hold in um, in the library for this one, and I can't wait to read it. Um, it looks really fascinating. And you also mentioned that she likes books like... Um, don't like let's go to the dogs tonight and the girls from Corona Del Mar, which are very much like, you know, like exploring women's lives and personal stories in these different cultures. So I feel like this is still a good fit. Um, so that's Where We Once Belonged by Sia Fijil. Okay, question two is from W, who says, I've always had depression, so at this point it seems like old hat, but recently I've been suffering with a massive amount of anxiety. Uh, I'm doing yoga, I stopped eating meat, I journal every day, and I've read the self-help books, but honestly, nothing helps except to distract myself until it goes away. So what I'm looking for is basically a great audiobook, maybe a mystery, with little to no real conflict that is fun. I like My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, Lumberjanes, Steven Universe, and Adventure Time. I'm looking for something sweet and a fun romp, but in no way causes the, quote, are they going to survive slash are they sad that their family is dead, quote, sort of anxiety. That is both illogical and sadly my new reality. I loved Anne of Green Gables, but even that kind, but even that was kind of too much after the first book. Note, I've read Hyperbole and a Half, Furiously Happy, The Year of Yes, and a lot of the other popular self-help style books, but I'm really looking for a good, fun distraction. Okay. I picked Harriet the Spy <laughs> by <laughs> Louise Fitzhugh. And like, I so stand behind this recommendation. It is available on audio. I checked Audible. The narrator is Ann Bobby. It's only, it's about seven hours long. Um, and it is just super fun. And a lot of the books that you name that you like, My Little Pony and Lumberjanes and Steven Universe, these are uh, stories 
for kids. I mean, like, and for adults, obviously, of, co- of course, um, but they're like kids books and things. So I thought this would be a good fit. And Harriet the Spy does have mysterious elements. You know, this is about a little girl. She's 11 who wants to be a writer. And the way that she practices is by spying on all of her friends and neighbors and family members and writing down everything she observes in her notebook um, with her guesses as to what she's seeing or her suppositions or hypotheses about what she's seeing. Of course, she's wrong about like 90 of it, 90% of it. Um, and it's all a little bit mean. And then her uh, notebook she loses it and it gets her friends find it and they read all of these things that she's written about them. And she has to kind of like go on this mission to make it up to her friends. Um, there are, there is, you know, a, a few mystery elements. It's not necessarily a mystery, but there are mystery elements where you as the reader know that like she's observing her neighbor doing X, Y, Z and thinks that it's this thing, but you know, as an adult, especially that it's actually this other thing. Um, so there, the stakes are like super low as a as a reader or an audiobook listener because you know that it's you know it's a kids book it's all gonna be fine. The mysteries that she's solving are like, did my neighbor kidnap a dog or no? Probably not. She's probably dog sitting like that sort of thing. It's 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 a it is fun. Um, I don't know if I would say that it's sweet. Harriet's a, a little bit of a brat, but it is like just you know it's just a, a fun low stakes low stress little bit of mystery audiobook that I think would be a good a good fit for this. So yeah, Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitz. I was having trouble coming up with an answer to this question. And I asked my friend Nita, who works in audiobooks, and she gave me like a like comedy gold recommendation. It is actually an audio drama that is available on audio called excuse me, on Audible called Cabin Pressure. And she says that it's so funny and the conflict is comedic stuff like but where did they hide the lemon on the plane? <laughs> so it's an audio drama of a semi-incompetent private jet crew. Um, and they basically have like shenanigans. They're prepping for a trip that they're in no way qualified to go on. Um, and somehow magically everything works out every time. Um, she says that when she listens to it, she's burst out laughing a bunch of public um, and that it's well-written and performed. Uh, her favorite episode <laughs> is apparently one where they have to take an airline safety course um, and there's just lots of ridiculousness. Uh, and also bonus Benedict Cumberbatch is in it from before he got famous. Um, so there's that for you. And there's a ton of these. I looked it up and there's like four seasons worth of, uh, episodes and, um, each season is about two hours, uh, like a little under three hours, but I think that like it makes up a bunch of episodes. So if you're not looking for something that you need a long time to listen to like you just want like 20 or 30 minutes of ridiculousness this will um answer that so yeah it's 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 i i guess i don't usually not recommend a book but it's like it's an audio it is an audio drama which is it is fiction so i think it counts um so that is cabin pressure and thank you nita for that recommendation i had a really fun time listening to her tell me about this and <laughs> <laughs> um okay question three is from mallory who's says, I'm looking for a fiction about evil children. One of my all-time favorite books is We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. I had an intense, visceral reaction to the title character in this novel, and the ending absolutely ripped my heart out. It made me want to read all I could about evil kids, but I wasn't able to find much. I read The Bad Seed and Rosemary's Baby, and all those... 
Although those could both be classified as horror, I was much more horrified by Kevin. I'm also hoping for something more contemporary. Do you guys have anything in mind that will fill my need for bad babies? <laughs> this question is so great. All right, Amanda, what you got? I'm about to ruin Christmas for you, and I apologize in advance for that. <laughs> um, my pick is Nosferatu by Joe Hill, which has not one, but like dozens of terrifying sociopathic children in it. And they're all super violent. Yay. Um, so I don't need, this is such a weird book and it's so big. Okay. So Victoria is the main character. When you meet her, she's like eight, I think. And she has a bike that she takes across this rickety covered bridge in like her town that turns out, I don't, the bike is like not magical, but it's, it's almost magical. She has this ability to ride it across this bridge and it takes her, transports her to wherever she needs to go. So if she's looking for something, like she's lost a bracelet, she can ride her bike across this bridge and it will take her to wherever her bracelet is. Uh, and all of this, uh, like she just, she needs to escape her parents who are having a huge arg argument. She can do that and it'll take her to wherever she needs to go. Um, and she's not the only one in the country who has this ability to go to like an alternate dimension almost using some uh, seemingly really mundane object. Uh, there's a librarian character here who has interesting abilities that she uses like scribal uh, tiles for. Um, and there's also a bad guy named Charlie Manx. And he drives a Rolls Royce from the 30s that says Nosferatu on the plates. Um, and with it, he goes in and out of our world and this other world and kidnaps children with the assistance of his like, I don't know, like minion who is like a serial killer. Um, and he takes them, takes the kids that he kidnaps to what he calls Christmas Land, which is like a Neverlandish amusement park um, that's Christmas themed, but evil and terrifying. Like if Pennywise ran Christmas, this is what Ugh. it would look like. I know. Um, and Victoria is kidnapped by Charlie when she's in one of these like states where she's gone looking for something. Um, but she escapes and she becomes the only child to ever escape Manx. Um, and then she grows up and he finds her and takes her son. And so for the rest of the book, she is on this mission to save her son from Charlie Manx. So she has to go back to Christmas land. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, describing the book, it almost sounds kind of like silly, but it's just the worst. <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. so frightening the way that Joe Hill writes kids. Um, I heard an interview with him or maybe I read it where he was saying that like children are essentially little, they're sociopaths, right? They're not born with any concept of morality or ethics. And part of our job as a society with children is to instill what is societal, societally acceptable behavior and what isn't. Like if you give a kid a puppy and never, you know, tell them don't hurt the dog or you're squeezing it too hard, like what would happen, you know? And that's essentially what he does. He takes these children out of, out of normal society and puts them in this terrible vacuum where no morals or ethics are ever instilled in them. And then they are given a bunch of really sharp objects and the ability to do whatever they want. And they all just remain complete sociopaths. It's so creepy and weird and just very disturbing. Um, and that's what I think is like this. Obviously, this book has supernatural elements. There, you know, you're traveling to alternate dimensions and all this stuff. And Charlie Manx, I think, never dies somehow. He's like immortal. Uh, not really, but, you know, he's like ageless. Um, but the ways that the kids specifically are evil is like it reminded me a lot of we need to talk about kevin and it's not that they even are evil so much as they're lacking good like they are chaotic evil you know what i mean like not even chaotic neutral they're chaotic whatever the bad one is um because they're not trying to hurt people who come around they just are doing whatever they want whatever they want to do involves sharp scissors a lot of the time so 
good luck with that one. <laughs> so that's Nosferatu by Joe Hill. Yeah, I noped out of that book real fast. Um, okay, I'm a baby. Um, I, you and I are opposite readers. I cannot read about evil kids because it freaks me right out for all of the reasons that Amanda just detailed. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't have a book for you. I do. It is The Dinner by Herman Koch. Um, and this, oh, it is translated by Sam Garrett. Um, and this book, I remember when it came out at the bookstore because everybody was like, Everybody was obsessed with We Need to Talk About Kevin. And then everybody was obsessed with this book. And it was like a, it wasn't even a, dem, a Venn diagram. It was like a circle of people who wanted to like talk about We Need to Talk About Kevin and then who wanted to talk about this book. So I feel like it's very much similar. It will give you the same feels as that one. Um, it is set in a restaurant in Amsterdam. The whole book takes place over the course of one meal. And um, these couples are meeting like it seems like, you know, they're at a fancy restaurant. They're having a nice meal. How was your holiday? Um, but it turns out that each of them has a 15 year old son and the boys have done a horrible thing. And now there's a police investigation going on. And the conversation, like, eventually finally gets around to, like, what are they going to do about this thing that their children have done? Um, and it is the answers that they have are very variable. Um, and so this is one of those things where the catalyst for the conversation is the boys. But you're also, so you're looking at, like, two boys have done a horrible, horrible thing. But you're also looking at the parental response to it and like what are like what 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 is what they are gonna do in terms of like d making ethical and moral decisions or or perhaps not um and it's one of those books that kind of is just like has that sinister undertone right underneath this like very polite veneer of you know normal society um so that is a thing that that some people are super into. I, it just freaks me out. I'm not judging. I just, I just can't read it. But anyway, go forth. Um, it's The Dinner by Herman Koch, uh, translated by Sam Garrett. Nope, 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 nope. I just get, I just get so, I have nightmares. Like, this is, this is the stuff that gives me nightmares. Yeah. But, like, it's too close to real life, and I just, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a delicate flower. What can I say? That's fine. All right. <laughs> Okay, question four is from Amber, who says, I work in a bookstore and conduct a YA book club. We've read and loved books of multiple different genres. While we mostly stick to, to YA, we've recently started venturing into sci-fi and fantasy. Some of our past favorites have been Mosquito Land, Eleanor and Park, The Kids of Appetite, Cinder, Scorpio Races, The Martian, Ready Player One, uh, House of the Scorpion. We've also read lots of historical YA fiction like The Book Thief. While uh, we've thoroughly enjoyed most of these books, we keep bumping into two problems. We enjoy the heavier themes of some contemporary and historical YA, like examinations of race, mental illness, and troubling family dynamics, but we've read too many that have described sexual violence. And two, sometimes wading through the YA section, it's difficult to find books that are well that are written well and don't follow typical YA tropes. We're very tired of love triangles, especially in the fantasy and dystopian genres. Do you have any suggestions for a group of 15 to 16-year-olds who love YA and sci-fi fantasy but are tired of these particular topics? Bonus points for fantasy picks. Okay, we do. Yay. Yay. Um, I picked uh, a new release that came out this year. It's called Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. And this mashes up a lot of the things that I think you like. It is historical. It's an alternate history of the Civil War. Um, and it takes place in Baltimore and also a little bit in the Midwest. Uh, and it is a fantasy because alternate 
alternate history. Uh, also, there are zombies. So Jane is the main character. She is a black girl who's born to a white mother who owns the plantation in the South. And she's born in a uh, world in which the Civil War has ended, not because one side or the other won, but because zombies started coming out of the ground. And the fighting had to stop so that the soldiers could um, put down the zombies instead of, you know, putting down each other. So the war is technically over. Slavery is technically illegal now, um, except there are still laws like the Native and Negro Reeducation Act, which require kids of color to attend combat schools to learn how to put down zombies. Um, and Jane is doing that. She is studying when the book opens to become what's called an attendant, which is when you're trained in both, you know, like weaponry and fighting tactics, but you're also trained in etiquette and how to behave in polite society. And eventually these girls will get hired out to be basically bodyguards for really rich white society women. Um, she doesn't want to do this. <laughs> Jane has like no interest in doing this. When she's done with her mandated combat training, she wants to go back to Kentucky to her house um, and see what's going on with her family because she hasn't heard anything from her mother in months. Uh, and she is afraid, of course, of what's you know happened while she's gone. And she doesn't care much about the political situation. Like she's just trying to survive and live her life. Um, but... Then she gets caught up in this kind of political conspiracy where families around Baltimore start to go missing. And these are families who are friendly to the school, who are friendly with families of color, who are essentially politically liberal. They start going missing. She kind of figures out why and gets caught up in the middle of this really great countrywide conspiracy um, that forces her to become both very political and very super violent <laughs> against Again, zombies. So yeah, yeah, it's it's like the most fun. It's very heavy. Like it is dealing with the the themes that you said you you all enjoyed reading about and talking about contemporary things um, like racism. It's very obvious that Justina wrote this book during the election and that it came out during the Trump administration. Like the the villain's um, slogan is "Make America Strong Again" or something like that. Um, I might be getting it a word or two off, but it is like. She's not being subtle here. Um, so there's a lot to pick apart uh, for the for the kids in your group. But it's also just a super fun adventure about a girl who's very Huck Finnish. Like, she doesn't care about society or being polite or whatever. She just wants to, like, eat good food and live her life and go home. Like, that's all she cares about. Um, and then, you know, zombie killings. And the cover's amazing. So it's just a lot of fun. I think this is something for everybody in your book group. So that's Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. I have a sci-fi pick for you. Uh, well, a sort of sci-fi. It's The Adoration of Jenna Fox by Mary Pearson. And it is set in like a potential near future. Um, and the main character, as you might have guessed, is named Jenna Fox. Um, and she has just woken up from a coma. And she remembers absolutely nothing. Um and she, like, has to be told what her name is and who her parent, like, we're, hi, we're your parents. Like, you live here. Blue is your favorite color. Like, hi. Um, and she is very confused about what is going on around her, mostly because she doesn't have memories, but also because some things don't seem to add up. Um, and her parents are like, you know, showing her photo albums and all of this stuff. And she's just kind of like, I don't know. And um, the reason she was in a coma is because she was in a terrible accident. And she's also trying to figure out what happened there. So I can't tell you any more about the plot without spoiling things. But what I can tell you is that there is so much to talk about in terms of um, the 
like the choices that the characters make. I'm like being so cagey here. <laughs> I'm really trying not to spoil things happen. Things happen book. and you'll want to talk about them and why they've happened. But it's not in like a big explosionsy kind of way. It's in a much more subtle way. And it asks us to think about I mean, obviously it asks us to think about identity. Like if you have amnesia and you wake up, are you still the same person that you were before um, you lost your memories? But then there are other ethical and moral questions at play here. And um, the book does not present real answers. Like, Jenna makes some choices, but the book doesn't say, like, these are the right or wrong choices. This is just what she does. Um, and there's a lot of good discussion material. I did lead a book group about this um, oh, many, many years ago um, and with teens, and it was a really good book group discussion. Um, and it is also the first in a series. So, I'd, I mean, book groups don't normally do series, but if this is a thing that you want to try, um, you definitely could do it. Um, and yeah, it is, it is well-written, it's well-plotted, it's well-paced, and um, it's not super long either. Yeah, it's under 300 pages. So there's there's a lot packed in here, and I think you will get a lot of mileage out of it. So that is The Adoration of Jenna Fox by Mary Pearson. And there is I, there is a flirtation in it. There's like a little bit of a love story, but no love shapes. No love shapes. No love um, shapes. Okay, so our next sponsor is The 49th Mystic by Ted Decker, which is the first in the Beyond the Circle series. Some say the great mystery of how one can live in two worlds at once died with Thomas Hunter many years ago. Still others that the gateway to that greater reality was and is only the stuff of dreams, but they are wrong. In the small town of Eden, Utah, a blind girl named Rochelle Matthews is about to find out just how wrong. So this is the beginning of a two-volume saga of high stakes and a mind-bending quest to find an ancient path that will save humanity. The clock is ticking and the end is rushing forward. Uh, Ted Decker is a New York Times bestselling author and this series returns readers to the world of his most popular series. Um, his passion is to explore truth through mind-bending stories that invite readers to see the world through a different lens. And uh, Rochelle, the protagonist here, has to unlock the five seals of truth to save our world from darkness. So high stakes indeed. So again, that is The 49th Mystic by Ted Decker, uh, first in the Beyond the Circle series. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. And it is still me. It is time for our fifth question from Emily, who says, I have recently started a book club at my local nonprofit for our volunteers. I work for Voices for Children, which assigns volunteers to look out for the best interests of children in foster care. So far, we have read The Glass Castle, Evicted, and My Name is Leon. We have future picks of The Hate You Give, Dreamland, The Language of Flowers, and Lost Children of Wilder. Any suggestions for a book about children in foster care or any topics that deal with social justice slash welfare, non Fiction or fiction would be great. Amanda, what you got? Okay, I picked a YA novel. You mentioned The Hate You Give, so I assume y'all are cool with that. Um, and it's a, it's a bit older. It's called Peas and Carrots. It's by Tanita S. Davis. And it was published... Oh, actually not. It was published in 2016. I thought it was older because of... I don't know why. <laughs> because I was wrong. Is why. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, that's, that's all there is to that. And this is um, a, a story about foster care that I really appreciated because the foster parents in this novel are not the worst. They're actually really great, which I think is a, a sort of rare portrayal. And I am I am a foster parent. I'm sure I've mentioned that a million times here. Um, so I like deeply appreciated that. Um, and it's about a, a girl named Des whose mother ha is in jail. Um, and her uh, she's being taken out of, she's in a group home. She's a teenager. She's in a group home. Um, she's being taken out of her group home and being placed in a new county 
with a new foster family who has her biological brother, who at this time is like four. Um, and so something has happened with her mom in jail. She's decided to testify against her ex-boyfriend, which has put her in a little bit of danger. Um, so they've decided to t- put Des in a new county. And in doing that, they've decided the best thing for her is to be placed in the same home where her brother lives. And Des is white. And she is placed with this new family who is black. Um, and her little brother is biracial. So she goes to this family who has another girl the same age. I think they're both 15 or 16, named Hope. Uh, and the girls immediately hate each other, like with the passion of a thousand fiery sons. Um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, sharing their boat, the bathroom that they have to share, as is often the case with teenagers in my personal experience. Um, but they have a lot of conflict that uh, isn't just about the bathroom. It's also about, uh, you know, taking in a kid who has come from a traumatized background and the ways that they act out, the ways that they react to new situations and new people who, you know, like you get taken out of what you're used to and put into a new house and now you're supposed to call these people mom and dad and that's super weird. Um, And so you get both point of views, both Des's point of view of being that girl who is now in this new house who has to make all of these adjustments um, and Hope's point of view. Um, And Hope is a really nice, they're both really, really sweet, like very kind kids. Um, And Hope her family, she's used to this, right? Like her family's always been a foster family. They have another child in their home who is, um, I think, 18 months old. And who's very medically, uh, not troubled, but she's got a lot of medical issues. Um, and so Hope knows the deal. Like she's prepared for the kind of aggression and hostility that Des puts out, but it still gets to her. And so she starts fighting back and then lots of conflict comes out of that. The The way that their um, interactions around race are portrayed is really interesting because uh, I don't, I have never read, I've read a lot of books about foster care fiction and nonfiction, and I've never read a book where a white foster child is placed with a family of color, uh, which is the case in my house. <laughs> and so that's, it was like very satisfying to read about, but the way that Des um, pushes that button when she's angry, like she uses it as a way to act out and watching how the foster family is portrayed, like how they deal with that is really fascinating. So I think there'd be a lot to talk about, especially for somebody who works in the system. You said that you work for CASA. Um, Our CASA workers are amazing. Y'all do really great work. So I think this would be, um, yeah, a good pick. A lot of things for you to talk about. So that's Peas and Carrots by Tanita S. Davis. I picked a book that is not about foster care, um, but is about children and social justice. It's Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I feel like this is a book designed for both book clubs and for people who are thinking about children and social justice. Um, It is a collection of essays in the form of letters um, to uh, Coates' adolescent son. And he is thinking about a lot of different things. He's thinking about his own childhood. He's thinking about his experience at Howard University. He's thinking about the Civil War. He's thinking about a trip that they took as a family to Paris. Like, he's thinking about James Baldwin. He's thinking about um, so many things, including what it means to be a father and what it means specifically to be the father of a black son and to be a black man in America. And it is just incredibly powerful. Um, This is a book that is very short, but, like, the feelings you will have have are enormous. Um, it is really, really intense. And it is, I think it's really essential reading. And it seems likely that a lot of you will already have read it, but I think that it would be fascinating to discuss it in a book club situation, especially when you're thinking about kids and like how the world approaches them and how they approach the world. Like, I feel like there's a lot of things in here that will be relevant um, to those discussions. And yeah, I also just think it's a book that 
everybody should read. So if you haven't read that already, um, it is, it is really powerful. Uh, and, and it, I will say also that, um, Coates has acknowledged that this is a very, uh, specifically male book. It, it's a father talking to his son. He's not really taking into the account into account the situation of black women in America. Um, and that is a limitation of this book. Um, but if you are looking for, you know, like how masculinity is constructed, um, both generally and also in terms of race, and then what a father might want to think about in regards to his son, this is definitely a good pick for that. So that's Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Okay, question six is from Karen, who says, I'm a uh, devoted reader of literary fiction, but want to get into contemporary YA. Where is a girl to start? For guidance, some of my favorite reads of the past year included Elena Ferrante's Napolitan... Mm, Why can I not say that word? Neapolitan series. What it means when a man falls from the sky. Goodbye, Vitamin. The Secret History. A girl is a half-formed thing. And The Lonely Hearts Hotel. And though I haven't read much, my favorite YA includes This One Summer and Another Brooklyn. Okay, it looks like... Um, you like to read sort of darker literary fiction about women and girls dealing with like really big, big stuff, big issues. So I picked I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. Um, and this came out last year, last year, this year, last year. Um, and it's about a girl named Julia who I think they live in Chicago, her and her family. And she is definitely not like living up to her parents' expectations. Her parents are immigrants from Mexico and they want her to be, you know, modest and quiet um, and to not go away for college, to stay at home until she gets married. Um, Julia is not having any of that. She wants, she's like very into punk rock. She likes to, wear, likes to wear a lot of black. She doesn't like hanging out at home. She definitely has plans to leave to go to school and she wants to be a writer. Uh, Olga, her older sister, really fulfills that role of being the quiet, dutiful, perfect kid. But Olga was hit by a car when the, the book opens and has died. And so now her family is both trying to process their grief about the situation and also hoisting all of the expectations that they put on Olga onto Julia. So she has all of this to deal with. At the same time, she is experiencing her first love, um, which is super forbidden. Um, and the boy is white, which is also a wrinkle. Um, and she has an undiagnosed mental illness also. And so you're really following her as she just unravels all of these things that are happening in her life, how to deal with her parents' expectations, dealing with her depression. And then she finds out that her sister wasn't actually perfect. She starts going through her sister's stuff and realizes that she was having an affair with somebody who may or may not have been married. She might have been pregnant. Like there's all of this stuff that she just doesn't know or never knew about her sister. And she gets really bitter about it, that like her parents thought Olga was perfect, when in reality, Olga was off living her own life and just not telling any of them. Um, so there is a point in the book where um, Julia ends up going to Mexico to kind of take a time out from her life and learns all of these interesting things about her parents. Um, I should have trigger warning this at the beginning, but she does, there is self-harm. She does have a suicide attempt. Uh, and then she comes out on the other side of that and learns to like, she gets into that she gets into therapy with a therapist who's very helpful. Um, and the way that they portray her mental illness in this book, I really appreciated because it's not glossed over, but it's also not like the end of her story, right? Like she gets a diagnosis, she gets into therapy and she isn't instantly better, but she is getting the treatment that she needs and getting tools that she needs to live a happy and fulfilled life and manage her illness. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on. Like you're coming at it from all kinds of angles. Um, and Julia herself is a hilarious character. Like she's super snarky and smart and witty 
and funny and she's not, uh, she's, you know, unlikable in that way that everybody actually secretly likes, but nobody wants to admit it because we don't want to say we like brats, but like <laughs> she's awesome and you're going to want to be best friends with her. So that's I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erica L. Sanchez. I also picked up what Amanda picked up that you like darker fiction, uh, specifically about women. And I have a book for you. It's Tiny Pretty Things uh, by Sona Carapatra and Danielle Clayton. And it is the first in a series and the second one is out. I think it's a duology. I'm pretty sure it's just the two of them. Um, The second one is called Shiny Broken Pieces. And this, they pitched it as Black Swan meets Pretty Little Liars. And I cannot having, I like know all of these things and I can't argue with it like it's kind of (laughs) true Um, it takes place at a ballet school um, a very elite Manhattan ballet school and the three top students Gigi, Bet, and June are the protagonist slash antagonists question mark um the narrative hops between the three of them and Gigi who is the new girl is like very sweet and sort of like free-spirited and she just wants to dance um and then Bet is the sort of like New Yorker like it girl and as a perfectionist and um like really super ambitious and kind of cutthroat and then June is also a perfectionist but is like quieter and sort of on the outskirts and she is dealing with with some family stuff at home and the way that they all interact with each other in this very like hothouse controlled intense environment is that things go terribly wrong. <laughs> There's a lot of intense stuff that happens in here. There's bullying. There's like sabotage. There's and each girl is dealing with really different personal stuff and like what you see on the surface is not at all what's going on behind the facade and you start to get a peek into that and it starts off with you're just kind of figuring out like who is doing the bullying but then the tension gets like ratcheted up and up and up and up as the book goes along and then it ends with this thing and you're like how can you end a book there like how dare you not tell me what has happened here like I need to know all the things so but you are lucky because the second book is out now so you can have that next installment immediately um it is like it's like it's so immersive it's not like I don't want to say like it deals with a lot of real issues, but in this sort of like candy coated, like pop culture way that it doesn't take the issues less seriously. It just gives you this amazing, like, you know, like page turny plot on top of it. So I, I think it does both of those things really well. Like it satisfies that like pretty little liars, like soapy drama feel to it, but it also is digging really deep into what it is that we expect from girls and how those expectations can twist them in ways that are not great um and yeah i just i loved it uh so that is tiny pretty things by sona carapatra and um danielle clayton enjoy Oh, and it's me again. Uh, The last question is from Kristen, who says, recently I have experienced some love life turmoil and being a big fan of book therapy, I was wondering if you knew of any books about unrequited crushes or the friends to lovers trope not working out. I prefer contemporary over fantasy if possible. What you got, Amanda? Okay. Um, I went with I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which... I, I feel like every character has unrequited <laughs> crushes. Like they all love someone or something that does not love them back. This is a really charming book. Uh, it's kind of a classic. It was published in the late 40s. Um, and it's about a 17-year-old girl named Cassandra 
who keeps a journal. This is essentially her diary uh, in during like a six month period in the 30s. And her family lives in a really run down castle in Suffolk. It's like crumbling and falling apart. They are, I suppose the term is like living in genteel poverty, except it's not really genteel anymore. Like they've already passed that sort of, we used to be well-to-do and we're pretending like we're still well-to-do. They can't even afford to pretend like they're still well-to-do anymore. They're just kind of like, they have no food. You know, they can't afford to clothe themselves. Their father was a writer who hit it big with one and has been putting off writing another book for ages and has just like locks himself up in a tower to write and lets his family starve basically the whole time. Um, They have a stepmother. The girls have a stepmother who is very pretty and flighty and very silly and kind of useless. Um, And then some boys show up (laughs) and things start to happen. And Cassandra has a sister who is older. Yes. I can't remember. Uh, But there are, um, there's some like, not love triangles, but like crossed, cross lines sort of about who gets attracted to which boy that shows up in the, in the village. Uh, and the, the book doesn't have, I'm not going to say that it's plotless, but it's certainly not like plot heavy. There's not a lot that happens except a 17 year old girl is spending six months starving and not getting a job and being in love and watching her sister also do the same thing and feel the same way. Um, and watching these, the, the objects of their affection, these boys that come and go return or not return their affections. Um, and it's just very like deeply felt and heartbreaking, um, and unrequited and sad. And kind of lovely, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's very English. I feel like. <laughs> there, I mean, there aren't any moors, but there is a crumbling castle, <laughs> and there's a lot of tea that's not not consumed because they can't afford it. So, yeah, it's just charming. So that's I captured the castle by Dodie Smith. This is a hard question for me. I it was really hard to find books where they don't end up together at the end. Um, and the book I picked for you is Last Night in Montreal by Emily St. John Mandel, who you might know from Station Eleven. That was the book that like sort of catapulted her into uh, book fame. But she wrote two very sort of like thinky and a little bit like mystery thriller novels before that, and this is her debut. Um, This book comes with a trigger warning for child abuse. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, But yeah, don't pick it up if that is a trigger for you. Um, And this is a book about a young woman named Lilia who is a sort of eternal vagabond. Um, She cannot remember anything before she was seven years old. Um, And that is the first night that she has memories of uh, are the night that her father sort of took her um, from her mother. And they spent basically her entire childhood on the run. Um, Fake names, you know, trying to stay off the radar. She uh, is, like, uh, in her 20s, I want to say, when the book takes place. But you get some of these snippets of her childhood. Um, And eventually, you know, she starts to stay a a little bit longer in places. Maybe she's got some friends. Maybe she takes lover. But then she just, like, gets up and moves when she's like, nope, now I'm done. I'm getting up and I'm leaving. Um, And she has recently had a relationship with a young man named Eli. um, And she says one day she's just popping out to get something. And then he, she just doesn't come back. But in Instead of letting her go, he is like, no, I need to know where she went and I want to know if she's safe and like what is going on here. Um, So he starts to try to track her down. Um, And this is 
a weird book in that you're not 100% sure that you feel good about what any of the characters are doing. You're like, Eli, please don't stalk women. And you're like, Lilia, perhaps, what are you doing? Like, what? no, really, what are you doing? Um, and there's a private detective who's, like, maybe following her. And you're like, why is she on the run? Like, what has happened that this woman is living this way? And, like, is she okay? Um, and it's not really sinister. It's more just, like, what, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you just want to sit them down and be like, okay, let's have a talk about your choices, <laughs> um, which is a thing in literary fiction that sometimes annoys me and sometimes works for me, and this time it worked. <laughs> you know, like, it just depends on the author and the context, and in this case, I really was like, oh, this author is doing something here, and I want to see what else she does. Um, so, yeah, so it's it, it's it starts off with an unrequited love story and kind of turns into this, like, personal story of discovery from there. Um, and it does have a happy-ish ending, but I like am 98% positive that it's not the ending that you're going to expect. So it's been a while since I read the book, though, so don't hold me to that. But yeah, I think it like has a lot of complicated feelings. It has a lot of complicated situations, and it definitely is not like a love story. So I feel like this will give you some of what you're looking for in terms of emotional content. So that's Last Night in Montreal by Emily St. John Mandel. And that is our show. Thank you all so much for listening to our Caffield caffeine-fueled ravings. I can still talk. <laughs> um, if you have a chance, please do leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find the show, and we do love to see feedback. Thank you very much to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. Uh, you can find me on social media on Tumblr. It's jenirl.tumblr.com, and that is Jen with two N's. And I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.